Well, we are in this series called Everyday Spiritual, and we're talking about how to follow Jesus in normal life. And the reason that's so important is because sometimes we can think that following Jesus is like this church thing. It's like this thing you do on Sundays, or it's this thing you do in your small group, or it's, you know, when you put your church hat on, then you have to do Jesus stuff. But then outside of that, it really doesn't connect that well. And this series is all about how, how do you follow Jesus in normal life when you're doing normal stuff, like getting ready in the morning and interacting with your spouse or interacting with your friends or trying to get your kids up and ready or going to work and interacting with you know, your colleagues and your boss. And how do you do normal stuff in a way that honors Jesus? And in the first week of the series, we said that following Jesus is more about steps than it is leaps. It's about steps, not leaps. That if you're going to become like Jesus, it's not going to be because of this epic leap where you heard this sermon one time or you did this thing one time and just from that moment forward, you were different, you were changed, and you were always just this really, you know, holy kind of person. Instead, it's going to be through consistency, through an everyday decision of taking steps every day to be more like Jesus. And then last week, we said that one of these steps that we have to learn to take is the step of practicing humility. Practicing humility, and that is thinking about ourselves less. Thinking about other people more. About changing our focus and recognizing that I'm not the center of life and life does not revolve around me. So that's what we talked about last week. This week, what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about from Luke chapter 12. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, Luke chapter 12 is where we're going to be. Luke chapter 12. Last week we looked at a parable from Luke chapter 18, and this week we're looking at a parable from Luke chapter 12. So we're going to start in verse 13. So Jesus is teaching, and in the middle of him teaching, There's someone from this crowd who yells a question. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, we don't know why he's asking this question, but conceivably, maybe their father had died and there was money that was left to maybe the older brother. And the older brother The custom was that he would give um, half of, so not, uh, he would give, he would have twice as much. So however that works out percentage-wise, he would give the remainder to his brother, okay? That's kind of how custom would work. And so maybe it's that type of situation, um, and maybe he just hasn't done that yet. We don't know. But one way or another, this brother is, thinks that he's entitled to some money. And so Jesus is this authority. Jesus teaches all the time. Everybody respects him. And so he's like, hey, if Jesus weighs in, he'll have to listen. You know, this is like appealing to your mom or dad when you were a kid and you were fighting with somebody. It's like, mom, so-and-so is doing such and such. And like, you know, if mom gets involved, then your problems will be solved, right? And so that's kind of what they're doing just with Jesus, okay? And so here's how Jesus responds, verse 14. But he said to him, man, Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? In other words, he's kind of changing the conversation here, and he's like, what makes you think that I would be someone who would weigh in and be on your side? What makes you think that I have, that I'm the person who should solve this issue for you? Now, ultimately, we know that Jesus is the judge of all things and all people. So they had the right idea to appeal to Jesus. The problem is, what we're going to find out as Jesus begins to tell this story, is that this man is appealing to Jesus with the wrong motives. This man is appealing to Jesus, assuming that Jesus will side with him. And Jesus doesn't get involved in things so that he can side with people. Jesus is the judge who defines what right and wrong is. And so Jesus, and this is classic Jesus, he goes underneath this man's question and gets to the heart of the motive behind the question. So here's what Jesus does. Verse 15. And he said to them, so now he's addressing the crowd again. 
And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, or that word could be translated greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So Jesus says, take care, or another way of translating that is, hey, look, here's a warning. Be alert. Here's a warning. Be on guard, or protect yourself from all greed. Now, the word greed, the word covetousness, means to want more for yourself. To want more for yourself. That's what it is. That's what it means. So Jesus says to guard yourself, to protect yourself, to watch out for when your heart begins to want more stuff, more money. And he says the reason is because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. In other words, life is not in having more. And what's so ironic about the fact that Jesus says this is typically we think the opposite of this. Typically, we think that we need to be on guard against losing our money. We need to be on guard over our stuff because we think that life does consist in the abundance of possessions. We think that our lives will be better if we have more. So typically, we guard against our stuff. We don't guard against the desire in our hearts to have more stuff. Does that make sense? And Jesus says the reason this is so important is because life doesn't consist in abundance of possessions. Now, the word that he uses for life here, super cool word, um, it doesn't just refer to like living, like being alive, having a heartbeat, having a pulse. The word life here refers to living on the inside. It's the idea of having pleasure. It's the idea of having security or inner peace, feeling like everything's going to be okay. (sighs) Everything's going to be okay. That's what life is. Life is feeling respectable and significant so that people can, can look and think, that's a good man. This word life is something that we all need and want. It's not a bad thing for you to want for your life to feel pleasurable, for you to enjoy life. That's not a bad desire. It's not a bad desire for you to want to have security so that you can go to bed at night and not stress, so that when your head hits the pillow, you're at peace. You're snoring. You're saying peace to everybody else in the room. That's not a bad desire to have that. It's not a bad desire to want people to think that you're respectable. All of those desires are actually good. We were made to be that way. The problem is when we begin to believe that an abundance of possessions, that having a lot can give us those things. The problem is when we start to think that if we accumulate more and more and more money, that then we will be able to sleep at night because we'll have security. Then we'll be able to feel like we have all the happiness in the world because we can get whatever we want. Then we'll begin to feel like, okay, now people can respect me. Now I can walk with my shoulders back and, you know, and walk into the room with confidence because now look at me. The problem is when we begin to believe that an abundance of, of stuff, having a lot of money will give us life, will give us those things, pleasure, security, respect, significance. And so Jesus' warning is, hey, be on guard. Guard yourself from greed. Guard yourself from this, this desire for more because it's that desire for more that can lead you down to this path that will result in your emptiness. And in order to illustrate that point, because that's so counterintuitive, and that was counterintuitive then, it's counterintuitive now. In order to illustrate why that's true, Jesus tells a story called a parable. It's a made-up story that has one point. And so here's the story that he tells. Verse 16, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced 
plentifully. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. Now, here's what's interesting. Who's the main character in the story? A rich man. Now, do you know how the Bible defines being rich? Having extra. Having extra. That's what makes somebody rich. Now, none of us think that we have extra, okay, because all of our dollars are accounted for. But extra, being rich, having extra, is what we would call maybe um, a first world problem, okay? So if you've ever complained because your shower ran out of hot water too fast, okay, you're rich. If you've ever, ever complained because the airline was delayed, you're rich. If you've ever complained because the cable guy gave you a window that was too long and you're going to have to wait at the house for a long time for him to show up, you're rich. You've got extra. You're doing stuff that is not a, a need, you're rich. Now, if we took, again, in our, in our world, it's like, uh, I don't know if that's true. But if we, if we took the average person in the room and plopped you in a random country in the world, you're rich. And that's who this story is about. And this story is about a man who's rich, and then something good happens to him. His land produces plentifully. His land produces more. So he's already got extra, and now he's got more. He's got an abundance. And so here's what he does. Verse 17, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? What shall I do? For, notice this, for I have nowhere to store my crops. What should I do? I've got nowhere to put all of this stuff. Now, do you, do you see what the assumption here is in this man? That if I have more, it's for me. One pastor I know calls this the, the, the consumption assumption. The consumption assumption. It's the assumption that all of my stuff is for my consumption. The assumption that all of my stuff is for my consumption. And that's what this guy has. I produced more. My land produced more. I've got more. So what am I going to do now? Because I don't have anywhere to put it all. And so here's what he does. Verse 18. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. So he thinks, all right, so I've already got these barns for my extra. I'm rich. So I've already got these, these other barns, but now I've got so much stuff, they're not going to fit. So here's what I'm going to do. We're going to tear those down and build bigger ones. And then I'll have a place to put all of my stuff. Verse 19, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods. You have an abundance. You have a lot now. You have more. You have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. Now, do you see what he's doing? He's believing that an abundance is where life comes from. He's believing that life consists from the abundance, from an abundance of possessions. That's what this man is doing. And so he thinks to himself, soul, listen, you can relax now. In other words, you can have peace now. You can have security now. You don't have to stress now about the future because look, you've got bigger barns. You've got stuff laid away for many years. So you can relax now. You can have peace. You can have security. And he says, eat and drink. In other words, all of my needs are met. I don't have to worry anymore. All of my needs are met. And he says, be merry. Or now I can do what I want in life. Now I can have pleasure. Now all of my desires will be met. It'll be a blast. He believes that life consists in this abundance. And God is about to call him a fool. Verse 20. But God said to him, Fool. Now, a fool is an idiot. That's the modern translation. It's an idiot. It's someone who isn't thinking clearly, is making stupid decisions. That's what a fool is. He says, fool. 
This night, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Whose will they be? Now, think about that. Eventually, everybody gives their stuff away. <laughs> Eventually, you will be generous, all right? You're going to die, and you're going to leave some stuff, and somebody's going to get it. And do you know how much of it you're going to give away? All of it. That's right. And then whose will it be? <laughs> and the answer is, he doesn't know. I mean, maybe he's got a will made. Maybe he can kind of control it, but... He's not going to be able to control how all the money gets distributed and spent once he's gone. And so you've laid up all this stuff for yourself. But tonight, you're going to die. And then what's going to happen to all this? Now, here's why this is surprising. Because what he's said to himself is that I have goods laid up. I have ample goods laid up for many years. And so now I can relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Do you know what he's done? He's, he's started to believe that because I have a lot of money, my years will at least last until the money's gone. Because I have a lot of money, that guarantees me many years. Do you see the subtle belief there? It's it's the belief that because I have money, my life is good. Because I have a lot, I'm safe. I'm secure. I can relax. I can have peace. But the reality is that having a lot of money doesn't save him. And the same is true even still today. And so God says, whose stuff will it be? And now Jesus says, verse 21, now the parable is over. Jesus starts talking to the audience and he applies it. And here's what he says. He says, so is the one. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, who builds bigger barns and is not rich towards God. Here's the point of the parable. It is foolish. It is foolish to accumulate wealth for yourself at the expense of your relationship with God. It is foolish to accumulate wealth for yourself at the expense of your relationship with God. Now, why is it so foolish to accumulate wealth for ourselves? Why are we tempted to do that? The reason is because, like we've said, we are tempted to believe that life does consist in having more. There are all kinds of fears that we might have. Well, what if I'm not able to pay my bills? What if a health crisis arises? What if another war breaks out? What if the economy falls apart? What if I lose my job? What if something happens to one of my kids? There are all kinds of fears that can pop up in life, and our tendency is to think that money will be the thing that will ensure that we'll be able to navigate any crisis that might arise. So that's why there is this thing in us. The Bible calls it greed, there's this thing in us that then wants more, that wants to have what we don't have. Because if we can just have it, I'm protected, I'm safe. But Jesus is saying it's foolish, it's foolish to try to accumulate wealth for yourself at the expense of your relationship with God. Now, here's where the question comes in. This is super interesting to think about. But why is accumulating wealth necessarily at tension or at odds or in conflict with a relationship with God? Why is the desire to accumulate, why is that necessarily opposed 
to our relationship with God. Why is that such a dangerous thing? Why does that make you poor towards God? And here's why. Because when you have the desire to accumulate, what happens to your trust? Where does your faith begin to be placed when you have this desire to accumulate, to protect yourself from all the fears that might happen in the world? What happens to your faith? What happens to your trust? What are you hoping in? This is why 1 Timothy chapter 6, you should go read this sometime. 1 Timothy chapter 6, the very end, like 17 through 22 or something like that. The very end, it says, instruct people who are rich in this present age. Instruct people who are rich in this present age. That means they have extra. Not to put their hope in their riches, but in God who richly provides. Instruct those who are rich not to put their hope in riches, but in God who richly provides. In other words, he's letting us in on this little, this little insight that money is like a hope migrator. Money is this thing that can slowly begin to take your hope away from God. And so that's why Jesus has to say, hey, it is foolish to accumulate for yourself at the expense of a relationship with God. It's foolish to accumulate for yourself at the expense of a relationship with God. So, what should we do instead? What should we do instead? Jesus says we need to guard ourselves from greed. We need to guard ourselves from greed. Rather than trying to guard our money, we need to guard our hearts from the desire for more. How do we do that? How do we guard our hearts from greed? Another way of saying that, a way of answering that question is to say, here's what we do. Rather than becoming rich towards men, rather than becoming rich towards the world, we become rich towards God. How do we guard ourselves from greed? We become rich towards God. How do we do that? What in the world does that even mean? How do we deposit things into a heavenly account, (laughs) so to speak? How do we do that? Two things. First, we trust in the gospel. We trust in the gospel. The gospel, gospel is a word that churches use, but it's just a word that means good news. It's just a message about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And here's what the gospel says. The gospel says that in in the beginning of all things, God is the one responsible for making stuff. So stuff's not bad. The world is good. He called it good. So like enjoying stuff, not a bad thing. God created the world and he placed us in the world to manage it, to steward it. Like he made us the owners of stuff so that we could manage it well. But then, rather than us partner with God in managing the stuff that he made, do you know what we did? We had greed in our heart that says, but I want more. And I don't have enough. And God, you are withholding some things from me that I want. That's what our ancestors, Adam and Eve, did. They said, we want more. And what they found out is that having more doesn't always make your life better. Now, they didn't have more money. They didn't have, like, an easier chance getting their kids into a better, you know, school system. That's not what they got by wanting more. They were wanting to deliberately disobey God. And as a result, things got harder. Things became broken. And this greed that they were tempted to have was sown in their heart and it went deeper and deeper and deeper until you've got an entire economy now (laughs) based on the idea of making you feel like your life's not good enough unless you have more. That's what capitalism is. I think it's still a great, you know, system compared to other systems, but that's what capitalism is. It's sowing the seed of doubt that you are not enough unless you have more. And so then you go buy stuff. And it makes people have more. 
But then here's what Jesus does. So that's how we got ourselves in this problem, is we basically just did what this man does. We said, we want more. We want to build a name for ourselves. We want to build more stuff. We, we build ourselves bigger barns. We've all made a mess of the world through doing that. But here's what Jesus does. When Jesus looks around while he's with his father in heaven, and he notices that my crops have produced bountifully. <laughs> I've got everything. I literally own everything. Jesus does not build himself bigger barns. What Jesus does is he comes to the earth and he tears down his barns, not to build himself bigger ones, but to build you one. That's what Jesus does with his wealth. God, who is rich, for your sake became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. God who is rich, for your sake became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Jesus tears down his barns on the cross so that you can have a barn. And then Jesus is raised from the dead and says, follow me. The path to life is not what the world says. The path to life is not accumulation. The path to life is sacrifice. You have to die to live. You have to give up to gain. The way that you gain more is you give away. That's what the gospel is. Jesus gains the name above all names. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name. Why did he do that? Why did God do that? For this reason, why? What's the reason? Because Jesus gave his life away. So Jesus comes to save us from our sins. And how does he do that? By being generous. We all had sinned and fallen short of God's glory and he loads up our bank account with glory on the cross. And when we come to him and trust in him, we're saved. We're saved. Now, think about that for a minute. What does a Christian believe about oh no, what's going to happen to me? Where does a Christian find their sense of security and hope? What if another war breaks out? What if the economy falls apart? What if this health crisis arises? What if I lose my job? What if I can't pay my bills? What if there's unexpected expenses? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if we could play that game forever? Where does a Christian go when that happens? Not to check the bank account, not to log in to Bank of America online, not to the Chase online account. Not to make sure that the Capital One 360 savings account is still fine. Not to the 401k. Where does a Christian go when those what-ifs start to arise? A Christian goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, you have promised that you will see me through. That doesn't mean that you've promised that I'm going to have a ton of stuff here today, now. That means that someday there is an age coming. That's why I love this. Um, in, that, in that First Timothy 6 passage, it says, tell those who are rich in the present age. Rich in the present age. In other words, there's a future age, and that's where the hope lies. So where does a Christian go? A Christian goes to Jesus, the one who proves God's faithfulness to us, who even when we were sinners, Jesus died for us. He gave his life so that we could be reconciled to God. That's where our hope is. That's where we go during the what ifs. So if we're going to guard ourselves from greed, what do we need to do? The first thing is we need to trust the gospel. Now, if you're a Christian, at some point you believed that's tough. At some point, you believed in Jesus. But part of growing in maturity as a Christian, part of becoming like Jesus in normal life is learning to preach the gospel to yourself every single day, to remind yourself that where my hope comes from is him, not me, not the money. That's where my hope comes from. So that's the first thing is we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves. We've got to go deeper into the gospel. We've got to recognize what we have because of Jesus. That's the first thing. Believe the gospel. Second thing 
is practice generosity. Practice generosity. Practice generosity. Here's what I mean by that. Generosity is our weapon to fight greed. Generosity is a weapon to fight greed. Generosity is more about your trust than it is about your money. Generosity is more about your trust than it is about your money. Here's what I mean. To give money away is a risk. It's a risk. To give money to things that you weren't planning to give money to, to give money to people or organizations or to give of what you have to others, that's a risk. And the reason it's a risk is because of all the what-ifs that you have. The reason it's a risk is because, well, you've already got all your dollars and cents accounted for. So how am I going to be taken care of if I give this money away? And do you see what that way of thinking is? That way of thinking is the greed. It's thinking, I need more because more is where life comes from. I need more because more is where life comes from. Generosity says the opposite. Generosity says the way that I experience life is not by accumulating, but by sacrificing. The way that I gain life is not by accumulating, but by sacrificing. Think about this. There are no inspiring stories of accumulation. Right? Think about that. Can you think of a single inspiring story about how somebody just hoarded things and accumulated and made sure that all their needs were met and they just, you know, built the empire. No, the inspiring stories that you hear are about how somebody gave of something that cost them for the sake of someone else. Those are the inspiring stories. So generosity, the idea of giving things away, is a way that we guard our, our hearts from greed. The tendency is to guard our money because that's where we think life, life comes from. The practice that we need to put on if we're going to be like Jesus is to practice generosity to guard our hearts from this desire to accumulate. So, how do we practice generosity? I want to talk about just a few things real quick, then we'll get you out of here. First, the primary way that we give to God is by giving to bless people. How do you do something great for your Heavenly Father? You do something for His kids. So that's the primary way that you bless God, that you give to God, that you um, like try to make deposits into your God heavenly account is you give to other people. So what kinds of things do you need to give to? Well, we need to give to bless people, to bless people spiritually and to bless people physically. So we need to give to spiritual needs and physical needs, spiritual needs and physical needs. This is why, and this is where things start to get a little bit awkward if you're a pastor, okay? But this is why, personally, I practice and, and have giving to local church ministry. The reason is because the local church is the outpost of God's kingdom on earth that is intended to care for spiritual needs. That's what the local church does. So, Having this gathering here this morning, even though the microphone don't work at the beginning of the service, and even though, you know, maybe the prayer time was like a little bit longer than you wanted or a little bit shorter than you wanted, or even though there's, we're getting rid of the offering time and we're getting the boxes, and even though we got communion, even though there's all kinds of little things, right, that are, that are different maybe than how you would want. This act of us being here gathered together to sing and open up God's word and pray and fellowship, that is a spiritual act. That is something that God has ordained to happen, to preach the word and practice the sacraments. That's something that we are supposed to do. That's what God has intended for the church to do, and it's what the church has done since the very beginning. So that's what we're doing here this morning, even if we don't get it right every time. What we're doing here this morning matters to God and it matters to you spiritually. Now again, we said this a couple weeks ago about the steps not leaps thing, but one great sermon may not change your life. 
One great worship set. Man, they did my favorite song and I started to kind of put my hand up a little bit. Like that's probably not going to change your life. But consistently gathering with God's people and consistently opening up the Bible and hearing it preached and consistently gathering for worship to sing, not to just close your eyes and think, but to actually sing sometimes. The practice of doing that is one of the things God uses to warm our hearts to the gospel and make us more like Jesus. And so what we're doing here matters. And so when you invest in the local church, this is one of the things that matters. This is one of the things that we're doing. And again, this is awkward to talk about, but it says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we talked about it this summer, but this is why it's right for a pastor to accept a salary from the church. Because the, the work that I should be doing primarily is planning how to preach this in a way that will get in your heart. That's, how, that's the primary thing I should be doing as a pastor, is helping you feast on the Lord in his word. That's the primary thing I should do. And so a pastor taking a salary from a church is something that, that is a good investment. Now again, this is, you know, tooting my own horn, so to speak. So I understand that it's awkward, but... That's what the Bible instructs us to do because there is something valuable for your soul that happens when your local pastor preaches the word to you. My hope for our church is that we pay more pastors to be here. My hope is that we have 10 pastors on staff who get paid a full-time generous salary. My hope is that the kids director and someday the gospel community director and the worship director can all be full-time and not like full-time and like scraping to get by, but full-time and live life and not have to feel guilty about, you know, it's our anniversary and we're going to go out and get a nice meal. That's my hope for our church is not just that, you know, my salary grows, but that the church budget grows so that we can hire more people to do more ministry. You've already learned about me. I am super introverted, okay? When I get up here, I can talk because I've thought about what I want to say. When I'm talking out there with you, I'm awkward. I know that, all right? So we need more people who are not awkward, who can meet needs, all right? People talk about, you know, the pastor's door should always be open. People can come over. The fridge is always open. That's a great thing if you're an extrovert and you love that. I don't even like sometimes for Courtney to come downstairs if I didn't know it, you know? <laughs> now, I'm, I'm growing in that, okay? But I'm an introvert. I like having my alone time. So we need more people who are different from me who can do that. Now, does that mean we have to hire everybody who does anything for the church? No, of course. We have multiple gifts in the body we need to raise you up to. But my point is, I hope that we can create a church that has a larger staff with more pastors who can meet more needs. So um, that's that. Um, supporting ministries. When you give to the local church, you're also supporting all kinds of ministries, like Kid City. And listen, we already talked about volunteering in there, but I hope that we can have the best nut-free, allergy-free, gluten-free, dairy-free, so that everybody stays safe. I hope we can have the best snacks in the world in there for kids. Because again, we want kids to love the church. So I hope that we can do that. I hope that we can have good coffee here. <laughs> good coffee here, okay? I hope that we can have better lighting on that side of the hallway, okay? I hope that we can pay for childcare for every small group someday. Now, that's a dream of mine I've, I've not told anybody about. But listen, I know it's kind of cool. It feels like a family if we're all here and all the kids are running around. But it also makes it really hard to talk about stuff. So I would love for us to be at a place as a church where, where we just pay for childcare for every single group. And you can choose, do you have a babysitter come to your home? We'll reimburse you for that. Or do you want to collectively try to have somebody watch? We'll figure it out. But I want you to be able to pay for that. I want the church to pay for that because we want to invest in community here. And the only way that happens is if people buy in and start contributing. So I want us to be able to do that. I want us to start a shower ministry. Now, this is Brockman's, he, this, he hammers me on this. This is a great idea, a shower ministry. We put a sign out on the street, free showers. You can come in anytime and use the showers upstairs. We've got all the stuff you need. We've got deodorant and, and uh, what are the other stuff you need? Towels, thank you. <laughs> Flip-flops in case you're grossed out by the ground. I know how some people are. And so we want to make it easy for people to do that. And listen, if we do that, 
You know what's going to happen to the hot water bill and the electric bill and all that stuff? So when you invest here, I hope that we can invest in people. So the church is a place that meets spiritual needs. The other thing that we want to do is is start more churches and contribute to more churches here in St. Louis, around the country, and around the world. We want to be a church that sends people and sends dollars to invest in ministry around the world. The only way that happens is when people begin contributing to what's happening. So we need to give to spiritual needs. We also need to give to physical needs. We need to give to meet physical needs. Now, the church, uh, we have money set aside every week that we give specifically to meeting physical needs, tangible needs. And we have an awesome team of people who are dreaming about how to do that well. Kat Brockman, Steve Brockman, Jeremy Kruger, and Tom is working with that. And then eventually the elders will say, great, and then it'll all roll, all right? So we're working on how to put together a good process for meeting needs like that. Um, That is huge, and we want to be able to do more of that. I love the fact that we're a church that has facilitated, and it wasn't anybody's idea. It was a kid's idea. It was awesome. But I love that we have the blessing box outside, and my office is right where I can see the blessing box, and dozens of people every week are coming and getting food from that little thing, and I want us to be a church that keeps that stocked. So we we want to meet physical needs. Um, We have a friend, Matt and Liv. They're two of our best friends from college, And we were driving around with them in their minivan one time around St. Louis, and we pulled up to a corner, and there was a guy out there holding a a sign asking for money. And he reaches, my friend Matt, reaches in his, like, middle console, takes out this big bag, and I'm like, what is he doing? And he reaches out, and he's like, what's up, man? What's your name? And he gets to know this guy, again, major extrovert, and he hands him this bag, and it had like granola bars, a Bible in it, water, um, I don't remember what else, but a couple of like get through the street kind of things. I would love for us to be a church that every week we've got like 10 of those that you can pick up and you're just going to, when you see people on the street, here you go. It's got a Bible and it's got some physical uh, things, to physical ways to meet needs in the bag. I would love to be a church that does that. Now listen, I don't know how to coordinate all that because I'm bad at coordinating stuff, right? Um, I So we need help with all that. But we also need funds to be able to do that kind of stuff. And this is not, again, just a a big sales pitch. This is a, hey, wouldn't it be awesome if kind of thing, all right? So give to meet spiritual needs and physical needs, and I believe the local church has a role to play in that. Um, So how much should you give? How much should you give? I want to give you four Ps to help you think about this. All right, four Ps. This will go fast if you're worried about time. First is priority giving. Priority giving. This means that you give first, not after your other expenses are paid. Right after Jesus tells this parable, he jumps down in verse 29 of chapter 12 and he says, And do not seek what you are to eat and what are you to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Verse 31. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. In Matthew's version, it says, seek first God's kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. This means that if we're going to be people who practice generosity, that we start to prioritize giving in our budget. That means giving comes first as a line item, not after we see what the expenses are. Giving comes first. Now, there's all kinds of, you know, problems with that, um, or problems if you don't do that. First, if you wait, it'll naturally decrease the bottom line of your giving. If you wait until after you have figured out all of your expenses, it'll decrease the bottom line of your giving. If you give first, it requires you to have a step of faith in your giving. It requires you to trust God to meet your needs, just like Jesus says to do here. If you give first you may just cut some expenses you don't really need. That's another thing that'll happen. So, how do you prioritize giving? One thing that we do is we set up recurring giving online. So, as soon as we get a paycheck, we have recurring giving set up, so it's just automatically going to come out, just like a, um, you know, the electric bill or the cable bill or whatever. It's a recurring gift. That's one way of just prioritizing the giving. 
Some of you work on commission, you can't recur, do a recurring gift because you don't know how much you're gonna need to write the check for maybe. And so, but you can still practice this by making it the first check that you write. So prioritize giving. Second P is percentage giving. Percentage giving. This objectifies the giving. It says, this is the portion that I'm giving. This is the portion that I'm giving. In the Old Testament, the command was 10%. We call that a tithe. That is a principle in the New Testament. So it's kind of interesting to think about. God, you know, technically owns the world and everything, and he just asks to give 10% back. So he still lets you keep 90, which is very generous, again, of him, because it's all his anyway. That sounds like a cliche church thing, but the more you think about it, the more it's true and powerful. Um, so he only asked for 10. But I think a tithe is a great place to start. I think trying to do 10% is a great place to start. And I think, um, I think that's reasonable. But if you are just look at you know, your life right now and you're like, there's no way I can do 10%. There's just no way. Then pick a percentage. Pick a percentage. Pick a percentage. And here's what I would say. If your mindset right now is, well, right now we can't give because of this and this and this. Right now, financially, we're not in a place to be able to do this, but someday when we're, when we're in a better place financially, then I'm really looking forward to doing this and this and this. If that's your mindset right now, here's what I would say to you, is I don't know if you'll ever be at a place where you feel safe enough to give. I don't know if you'll ever grow out of that because rich people, like real rich people, like mega, mega wealthy people, still struggle finding where, well, I don't know what I would give. <laughs> so it's far more, again, generosity is far more about trust than it is about money. So make it a priority, make it a percentage. Here's the third thing, make it progressive. Make it progressive. If you've been giving 10% for 40 years, what would God maybe ask you to bump it up to? If you've been giving 10% for 40 years, what might a percentage be for you? Would 15% be a, a percentage that would stretch you? If you've been given 15%, would 20% be a percentage that would stretch you? If you've been giving 5%, would 8% be a percentage that would stretch you? Again, <clears throat> this is far more about trust than it is about faith. And when you take steps towards generosity, it's a step of faith because you're saying no to what the world says about accumulating for life and you're taking a step towards God and trusting him to provide. So make it a priority, make it a percentage, make it progressive. And here's the fourth thing, make it prompted. Make it prompted. This means you've planned to give, but then sometimes something comes up, you weren't planning on it, and you still say yes. You hear about a need, you're, you hear about somebody talking about they want to go on this trip or they want to, you know, figure this out or I don't know. You, you hear about a situation. You haven't planned to give. You're already planning to give and you're already doing that. But then you hear about this random thing and you feel prompted to give and you say yes to that. This doesn't mean that you give to every single need that arises. It would be impossible for you to do that. It means that you stay open, though, to what the Holy Spirit might be trying to do to, for you to say yes to partner with that person in gift. So, this week, what would it look like for you to take a step towards generosity. Maybe you just need to become a better tipper. <laughs> Maybe you need to pick a percentage. And that's going to be like a hard budget meeting for you and your, you know, roommates or you and your family. Maybe you need to pick a higher percentage. Just bump it up a percentage even. I don't know. I don't know what a step towards generosity looks like, but here's what I know. I know that it's worth it and I know that God meets us when we choose to take that step. I've debated whether or not to share this story, but I just feel like I need to. I, as a pastor, <clears throat> this is a hard thing. Sometimes we're called to preach more than I can aspire to at the time. 
Like, my job is still to preach God's word, even though last week we talked about humility, and I failed at that, all, like, a lot this week, okay? But when it comes to leadership in the church, I feel like it, it would be wrong of me to call you to something that I'm not willing to do myself, okay? So let me tell you a quick story. Before I moved to St. Louis, I had just completed my master's degree. I paid cash for that whole thing. It was way more money than I wanted to spend. I was doing it for six years. So I was in seminary for six years. I just finished it. And um, on the, the church staff where I worked, um, I already made a pretty good salary. And once you get a master's degree, you automatically get an increase, okay? Because that's built into the way that their thing worked. And so I'm set to get a bump. Meanwhile, Courtney and I are trying to get back together and she lives in St. Louis. And so I'm like, long story short, quit my job, moved to St. Louis. And I was making half of what I was making before when I moved to St. Louis, okay? And so I had this number that I was asking God to help me make on top of what I was making with my little internship. Because there were a few things that I knew were coming up. We were getting married. We had, not important, but there were just a few other things that I thought we needed more money for. And so I had this number that I was praying very regularly that I was praying that God would have me, that he would help me make on top of that. But meanwhile, and this was the huge faith move, meanwhile, I chose to continue giving the same percentage that I was giving before. Now, that went against everything that seemed right in the moment because I'm trying to get to this number and maybe God's given me the number already and I'm just giving it away or whatever. But I just felt like, no, I want to be generous. And so I'm going to continue giving this percentage that I've set, even though I'm making half of what I was making. Okay. Long story short, um, right before Thanksgiving, we were looking over and our, our finances for the previous year and trying to prep for, I was trying to prep for 2020. I don't know if you knew that that's what we were doing, but that's what we were doing. Um, and so we're looking over stuff and I realized that the number I had been praying that God would help me get that he actually doubled that number. And I didn't even know it as I was going. It was just a random thing here and a random thing here and a random thing here. And all of my life growing up, my parents had modeled this for me and they had told me about times where we were down and we didn't know how we were going to pay for such and such. And then we got a check in the mail and da, da, da. And all of my life, I'd heard stories about this miraculous time where you got a check and you didn't know where it was going to come from. And it was because you were being faithful. So I had heard those things, but I had never experienced them. But by moving to St. Louis, I was putting myself in a position where I was having to trust God with my finances. And here's what's so cool is not only did he prove faithful, but he proved generous. And that's the kind of God that we have. And that's the kind of God who's inviting us to follow. That's the kind of God who's inviting us to take a step towards generosity this week. So would you this week commit to praying about how God wants you to take a step towards generosity. Again, it's about steps, not leaps. It's about steps, not leaps. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being a God who is generous to us and is honest with us. And God, you know, you know the destruction that can happen when greed gets in our heart. You know the damage it can cause when we try to accumulate rather than sacrifice. And so God, would your spirit be active now? Would your spirit be active now? Would you give us wisdom? To know what to do with what we've just heard. And then God, would you give us the courage to do it? It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.